0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. If you'd like the opportunity to meet me in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated, gastronomical gatherings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. These are enchanting, poignant and memorable evenings designed to bring together diverse perspectives with the aim of cultivating community and vibrant new partnerships. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listeners discount. I'm excited to meet you if you choose to come. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today I speak with Rupert Reid, eco-philosopher, academic, author, campaigner, UK green politician, and an environmental activist. An incisive and respected thought leader, Rupert has influenced public and academic opinion on issues including climate, genetic engineering, technological development, and advertising to children. Having co-authored books including A Film Philosophy of Ecology and Enlightenment and This Civilization is Finished, He was a key spokesperson for the Extinction Rebellion movement and now co-directs the Moderate Flank Incubator. Until recently, Rupert served as Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia, but after 26 years in this position, he recently took voluntary severance to dedicate himself to the Climate Majority Project as its co-director. While many of us might know Rupert through his work as a spokesperson and political strategist for XR, He has also worked as a national and European parliamentary candidate and councillor for the Green Party of England and Wales, and he formerly chaired the ecological think tank Greenhouse. With extensive experience arguing for ecology in media, Rupert has written for The Guardian, The Independent, The Ecologist, and many other newspapers and websites. A frequent guest on the Today programme, he has also been a panellist on Question Time, Newsnight, and Good Morning Britain. Rupert has made regular contributions on Radio 4's Free Thinking, BBC's Politics Live, several shows on LBC Radio and various podcasts, and he is a sought-after speaker at many events. Rupert, thank you so much for joining me in conversation. How are you doing today?
1: Good to be here, Nathalie.
0: So I'd love to begin by asking you the question that I open these conversations with, and that's to to ask you what you imagine is going on in the global human psyche, if we can play with that frame?
1: Well, it's obviously a very ambitious frame. Uh, I can't see into the the mind of my wife terribly well, never mind the whole of the rest of the the human world. But uh, look, I think if I had to try to answer the question, if you forced me, (laughs) I would say something like this, that Reality is starting to break through, but that is a slow and Mm -hmm. painful process. What I mean by reality is climate reality, ecological reality, the reality of the the multi-crisis, the everything crisis that is gripping our failing civilization. And people are starting to realize that we can't go on like this. People are starting to realise that what they have and what they love and what they're used to, if they're from the relatively privileged classes of the world, that is, is something which is fragile, uh, more fragile than until very recently we have dared to imagine. Mm. So it's, as I say, a painful moment. It's also a moment of uh, enormous promise. The real challenge could be described as one of uh, maturity, Are we willing to mature Mm -hmm. or will we be in rebellion and resistance to reality rather than in rebellion and resistance to those forces which have driven us over the edge of a cliff?
0: Mm. It's interesting talking about or hearing you talk about this idea of maturity. I was talking about this with a friend yesterday about the conflicts that we're seeing and wars that we're seeing unfold and how Mm. in all sorts of spheres of human life there can be this very understandable tendency to, to feel the heartbreak and the horror and the suffering in the face of many different crises, and we'll come on to the polycrisis crisis in a second, But and, and to feel that our pain, our, our suffering is worse or more important than or whatever it might be than the other person. There's this real tendency that we have when we're in pain to other folks who are perhaps perceived as being on a, on a different kind of in a different group or across a dividing line. and And I think it takes a degree of psychological, emotional, civilizational maturation to understand that, yes, there's pain, but all pain is is suffering that we would like to be able to alleviate in some form. Yeah. and so I wonder one of the themes that we're really kind of trying to arch towards in in these seasons is, given all of these different crises, what does flourishing potentially look like? And everyone might have a different answer to begin to kind of reply to that. But I'd love to ask, what does flourishing mean to you in these moments?
1: Yeah, lovely. But before I get to that, just let me say a word further on maturity in relation to what you've just very nicely said, Natalie, Mm. which is that the challenge of maturity is also a challenge of moving beyond narcissism and egoism. Yeah. And these are tendencies that have a strong grip in our current civilization. They are actively promoted, for example, by most advertising and marketing, which is an enormously powerful force in our world. They try to do estimates i've no I' have no idea how you can really quantify this, but they've tried to do estimates of what percentage of our ecological footprint collectively results from uh, advertising. And as you, I'm sure you're aware, the figures that are bandied around for that are somewhere between 17 and 23%. And that is an enormous amount of an enormous amount. So what we need to do is to find strategies and even the word strategy is inadequate, really. it's It's about finding a whole way of being which starts to move beyond that. And that's an ambitious goal. But that is the goal that we will be set on if we are actually set on flourishing. Mm -hmm. But stopping short for a moment of that goal, I think I would say something like this, that flourishing is being present to reality, that flourishing is being present to the moment, present to other people, uh, other beings, Mm -hmm. that flourishing is... The beautiful world and the more beautiful world that our hearts know is actual and possible Mm -hmm. and that flourishing is something which is um, attainable uh, right here and now uh, but it's more attainable the more we start to change the way that we live and that means on a small scale, but also on a medium scale and a large scale. Mm -hmm. So it means things like, for example, having a more local uh, way of living. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means not being completely uh, dependent upon uh, products and politicians and so forth, over which one has absolutely no control. Uh, It means having some say uh, in our collective future Ultimately, one of the things it means above all else is meaning itself. Hmm. What I mean by that is that I'm thinking, for example, of Viktor Frankl's uh, fantastic uh, um, work, um, which which emerged from the concentration camps in the Second World War, uh, especially, for example, his book Man's Search for Meaning, uh, in which he argues that meaning is something that we need more than the so-called basic necessities of life. I mean, food, water and shelter, you know, the astonishing discovery that he and others made in conditions of extreme uh, adversity, uh, that if you didn't have anything to live for, uh, that meant that you were definitely going to die. Mm. Whereas if you had something to live for, you could do without uh, heat, uh, clothing, uh, food and water for an astonishingly uh, long uh, period. Now, hopefully, we're not all going to have to go through such extreme adversity, but the, the lesson. Uh, generalises. Without meaning, we are nothing. And one of the great hopes offered by the great adversity that we are now starting to face to face together, uh, and that we need to have faith uh, in ourselves in relation to, one of the great hopes is precisely that it can give us meaning. Mm. That in a society that is terribly bereft of a, a real sense of what we're here for, um, this will be a key, a key part of, uh, of what we discover that we are here for. Searching together, working together to have uh, a future.
0: Mm. That's very moving. Hearing hearing you talk about meaning in that way, I think it's um, and it's one of the questions that I'm most interested in, and especially now when when it seems that in many uh, countries, you know, the kind of the the push towards rampant consumerism, materialism, mm. the atomization of people in relationships, like it just there's There's this sense that or at least my feeling is that that these things create and amplify and augment and pretend to meet the hunger for belonging, connection, community, yes, and then monetizes the ways or the paths through which we attain those things. So one example that often comes to my mind is the the kind of quality of conversations we can have with those nearest and dearest to us so whether those are kind of quote-unquote therapeutic conversations or showing up in your messiness and being loved anyway or coming together with a certain rhythm whether you have a religious or spiritual tradition or not but just to gather to eat to sing to play mm-hmm. and that so many of these natural avenues have been commoditized and I was, I was talking with someone recently about this is a fantastic researcher doing interesting work on what she calls transformative festivals, or what have been named transformative or transformational festivals. And, and again, it's kind of this, these sorts of happenings, and I can think of many, are started with wonderful intentions and yet often end up propagating some of the issues that they're trying to kind of, that they say they're trying to meet. And so when it comes to meaning and to, and I'd love to ask you about this transformative adaptation, Orienting ourselves towards what does it, you know, what are the qualities of those those beautiful lives that we believe to be possible, those sorts of relationships? What does it mean to cultivate a context in which these things can emerge and flourish and sustain us in the face of increasing difficulties?
1: You ask about transformative adaptation. So the idea with transformative adaptation is that, yeah, we've got to transform uh, in the kind of ways we've already started talking about. But it's not going to be a simple, smooth transition. If that was ever possible, it would have been possible if we'd have got started on it, say, 50 years ago or the latest 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. But we have only just barely got started now. Uh, it's going to be a very, very bumpy ride, what is coming. There's going to be a lot of adaptation that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to adapt Mm. to horrendously changed weather, for example, and that's starting to become clear to uh, all of us. Uh, and, we're going to, and this process of adaptation is going to be ongoing and iterative. Uh, An enraged nature, if you will, is going to throw more and more challenges at us. So we're going to have to build resilience, we're going to have to build preparedness, we're going to have to adapt together. But the kind of adaptation we do has in turn to be transformative. By which I mean, if we merely try to defend the existing system For example, building higher seawalls and higher flood defences only, rather than changing the way that we live. We're just trying to defend a system that is indefensible. What we do, our defences will be brittle. Defensive adaptation alone is bound eventually to fail. The adaptation we undertake has to work with nature rather than against nature. It has to be in the direction of the kind of changes we want and need to make anyway, it has to mitigate as well as adapting, by which I mean it has to, for example, reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the same time uh, as it defends us against their uh, effects uh, upon us. So Mm -hmm. not just building higher seawalls and flood defences, but also recreating wetlands and changing uh, where we live and how we live in relation to water and everything else. Mm
0: -hmm. So I've been following your work for a while, and not least on Manda's fantastic podcast, Accidental Gods. And um, I also had the pleasure of seeing you speak at a few different sessions at Planet Local Summit. And one of the things of many of the things that you said that I noted that really struck me was around um, how we frame and understand a situation in order to better understand what we can do about that situation. And I think it was a A quote or a paraphrase, I'm probably going to completely butcher it, but of Confucius, that we need to give things their right name if we Mm. are to rectify our situation. And so thinking about giving things (laughs) their right name, you talk about polycrisis. Can you expand a bit upon what you mean with with this term?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, the the key idea I take from Confucius here is, if we're going to rectify a situation, we have to begin, he said, by rectifying the names by which we call things. So for example, the phrase climate change is an absolutely hopelessly inadequate way to describe what is happening. One neat way to understand this is ask yourself the question, in 500 years time, will people call it climate change? Hmm. It's obvious they won't, right? They might call it something like the catastrophe or the uh, the, the the great water challenge. Or we don't know what they'll call it, but mm. we know for sure they're not going to call it climate change. So we shouldn't call it climate change either. Now, in terms of the word polycrisis, this is a useful word. Polycrisis means a crisis that has multiple uh, forms, like you know, a polyhedron or polyvalent. Mm. And, well, that's the situation uh, that we are in. We are in overshoot, which means that we are brushing up against or breaking through, tragically, the limits to growth, the planetary boundaries that scientists have now fairly exhaustively managed to uh, demarcate. Uh, climate is just one of those. You know, The others are uh, the nitrogen cycle, uh, water, um, the novel entities we're creating, uh, other species besides our biodiversity. On all of these fronts, we're getting into trouble. Uh, and it doesn't end there, of course. The polycrisis includes anything which is a potential existential threat at the least. So pandemics, uh, nuclear weapons, um, artificial intelligence is coming very much to people's attention uh, recently as uh, something which is potentially immensely threatening to our future. (laughs) And I would argue that all of these spring from common roots in our failing civilization, the kind of thing that we touched on already when we talked about um, narcissism and consumerism as against the things that we really are, if you will, and really uh, hunger for and and really need. Uh, And they have in some respects similar kinds of forms. There are dynamics that perpetuate them. For for example, dynamics of a kind of race to the bottom or so-called collective action problems where it's difficult for anyone to act without everyone acting together. That's true in relation to climate. That's also true in relation to nuclear weapons and to artificial intelligence. The same kind of issues arrive in each each case. Uh, This is something I'm working on uh, quite a lot uh, at the moment, how to think about this and then what to do about it? So the term "polycrisis" is a, a phrase that is being used quite a lot now to express all of this in one simple um, term. Um, it's not necessarily the best possible term. I mean, if you want to use yeah. a, a phrase which is which is more widely comprehensible, you might talk about the everything crisis, um, uh, which you know may may be more appealing to those who uh, find uh, you know ancient roots of words like poly a little bit um, baffling. Um, there's also um, sometimes an effort by people to to describe how all of these crises, as I've started to suggest, really are interrelated. Mm-hmm. So people, for example, use this phrase, the meta crisis, which you might say is more accurate. It's about how uh, we live uh, all together. It's about these fundamental drivers uh, that I've started to talk about of, of why we are headed off the the cliff, mm. um, but again, the term "metacrisis" can sound pretty um, obscure. So it's not clear that there's one term that is overall better than any other. And I think the term "polycrisis" will serve as well as any other to describe the multifaceted um, existential threat that we
0: face. Mm. There's so many questions I want to ask on this. I think a good a good next step is is to ask you and kind of fairly practical terms, and this might be super obvious to some folks, but I think it's really important to name here. What are some of the impacts that you foresee unfolding in the near and longer term future of of us not adapting um, collaboratively at scale and swiftly enough to these entangled crises?
1: So that's obviously a truly vast question. I'm going to approach it by just bringing out one dimension of it, which I think is absolutely crucial, Mm -hmm. which is food crisis. Because, yeah, um, meaning is uh, even more important than food. But all the same, you don't get to live for very long uh, in the total absence of food. So food's pretty important too. Uh, Plus, uh, the other dimensions of food that we've mentioned, the way that it's about who we are with each other as well in some truly kind of fundamental uh, way. It's one of the greatest sources of joy and togetherness and more um, in life. And that is really important Mm. too. So I believe that sometimes there are aspects to the climate crisis, for instance, which people tend to focus on um, a little more than they should compared to other aspects. So I'm thinking, for example, of sea level rise. Now, don't get me wrong. Sea level rise is a major um, hazard. Um, It's clear now that we're going to get quite a lot of sea level rise for for a very long time to come, just how much uh, depends upon what we do. Um, And that sea level rise will be disastrous in all sorts of ways and have all sorts of terrible knock-on effects. But the good thing about sea level rise, if you will, is that it is relatively um, non-rapid, yeah. right? Um, we're not going to get like a um, ten-meter sea level rise in a year or something. That's just absolutely not going to happen at all. We're talking, you know, some of process which is incremental. So there is the possibility of uh, adapting to it, even in systems that are sub-optimal. The same is, in my view, not true in relation to the uh, awful uh, global food system uh, that we have, which is quite uh, fragile in a number of ways, uh, which uh, at the moment um, fragilizes uh, our soil and other systems uh, further. Mm -hmm. Um, And, well, to cut a long story short uh i think and this isn't just me obviously you're thinking this, this is partly based on what all sorts of uh experts in relation to the very uh, various dimensions of the of the food system think uh, as shown in a very recent survey just reported in the independent for example i think that it is quite possible that sooner than people think um, food crisis will engulf large parts of the world um, and this will be if it happens, this may well be not something which occurs gradually, it could occur relatively quickly. When I mean, when I say relatively quickly, I mean, it could occur over a period of um, a year or two, or even quicker than that. Um, everyone remembers, of course, for example, the, the empty shelves and so forth at the start of the uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, demonstrating something about how unrobust um, our system is. Yeah. Um, that Process happened very quickly. Um, there could be something like that, but which was which was worse and took uh, only a little longer to uh, to unfold. And when people are uh, hungry, especially people who have absolutely no experience of uh, of being hungry or of that even being um, on the horizon uh, for them, then it's it's challenging for yeah. them, right some of them will do uh, unpleasant things. there will also be by the way and, and again this is this is really crucial and encouraging um, if and when the food crisis hits in parts of the world where it hasn't uh, already hit, there will be all sorts of wonderful um, stories and realities of people um, helping each other, mm-hmm. building community uh, um, exploring um, psychological and physical and shared uh, resilience etc but there will also be uh, tough stuff and uh, uh, uh and bad stuff and you know nobody wishes food crisis on anybody uh, else unless they truly hate them so uh that's a long way of uh, of saying that um in answer to your question, that um, one of the things I anticipate as likely, not certain, but likely, and you know just how likely it is and just how bad it is if it comes will depend once again on on what collectively we do in the interim. Uh, one of the things I think likely as an impact of the, the poly crisis and in particular of the climate crisis um, is gonna be the potentiality for unprecedented food shortages of various kinds Uh, emerging um, in um, many, possibly all parts of the world, including parts of the world which have no experience of them, within the next generation or two.
0: Um,
1: But that means that it it could be, in my view, within the next uh, generation. Uh, And again, by saying that, um, I'm not out of line with what uh, uh, a number of other specialists uh, in the relevant fields are starting to say.
0: And I think it's really important to find ways to engage with and there's a wonderful word in spanish which is aguantar which is kind of like to to withstand or to be able to face into some of the more um painful life-threatening impacts of what can happen if we don't adapt and even if we do adapt yeah and so when we're thinking about these things some of the themes that i really um resonate with that you've spoken with actually with great length, uh, with Manda. And it's such a wonderful conversation to follow. So if you're listening to this or watching this and want to dig in deeper, follow those conversations over on Accidental Gods. But this idea of how utopic and dystopic stories are perhaps not that helpful when we're thinking about how do we live into the future and prepare and collaborate together. But rather this kind of idea of the throughtopian process, path, story, narratives. Can you speak a little bit about what throughtopian ideas encompass, what throughtopianism is from your perspective?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, uh, as you say, Amanda and I have explored this. She and I have a, have a, a slight disagreement uh, in that <laughs> she thinks that there is no role for dystopias. Uh, I disagree. The way I see it is, uh, is this. Um, we should allow ourselves to think fully into the dystopian potentialities which are opening up before us Mm -hmm. as our default destination uh, unless together we change everything. We need to, for example, actually envisage and face uh, the potentiality of food crisis uh, together. Where she and I wholeheartedly agree um, is that it's absolutely not enough to think dystopias. And at the moment in the Arts in films, etc. Dystopias possibly have a little bit of an unhealthy grip. On the one hand, yeah. there hasn't been much kind of realistic exploration of the dystopian futures that will await us if we merely spectate on our own fate. But there's been a hell of a lot of uh, of dystopian thinking or um, assumptions. Now, traditionally, of course, the counterparts to those, the counterpoint, is utopia. But my argument is that tragically, utopias are no longer available to us. Maybe they never were, but they certainly aren't now. Uh, this follows from what I was saying earlier about, look, there just isn't going to be a smooth green transition. We're not going to have a wonderful all seeing, uh, all singing, all dancing future. Uh, neither are we going to go to Mars or whatever. And even if we did, it would be bloody awful. <laughs> uh, so what does that leave us? Yeah. What does that leave us? Uh, and here I coined this idea of through <laughs> how we get through what is coming in the best way possible. How do we flourish through the polycrisis? How do we make the best possible future that we can be proud of in the face of all of this adversity? And we're going to have to go through this adversity. And that's part of the the, uh, the clue, if you will, the key uh, to what a throughtopia could look like. I explore this in some detail already in my book, Why Climate Breakdown Matters, yeah. that the coming climate disasters, that the difficult emotions that all of this arouses. You know, if you're listening to this right now, you might be feeling some, uh, some depression, some anxiety. Uh, you might be feeling uh, grief stricken. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these are natural responses to an unnatural situation, right? We've created an unnatural situation on our planet, and these kinds of difficult emotions are the natural uh, response to it. But they have, they carry this amazing gift uh, within them. They they are they all spring from love. Um, we're angry because of people who we love being um, threatened with uh, harm. We're we're fearful because those we love, including ourselves are at risk. We're grief-stricken because what we love is being lost or at risk is at risk of being lost. So they all come from love. They're all forms of energy. They can all be the basis of a saner way of living. And that way of living will, of course, be a way of living together. And we find that kind of community precisely in responding to climate disasters, in responding to the difficult reality Uh, that we are uh, inhabiting. So the the very bad things which are here and that are coming themselves contain the seeds of the good within them. And what we have to do is water those seeds and start to build a better future together. Now, what do I mean by a better future? Uh, It's in many ways not going to be materially better. Uh, It's certainly not going to be in a conventional sense uh, materialistically uh, richer, um, and it's also going to be challenged by all sorts of uh, natural and unnatural uh, disasters, and so on and so forth. But compare with the, the Second World War, for example. Think about the uh, think about the Blitz spirit. Think about the the fact that uh, for many people it was come back to come back to what we were saying earlier. It was the most meaningful um, mm. time in their in their lives. Consider the fascinating fact that suicide rates went down dramatically during the Second World War, even though people were going through you know, absolutely horrible and grueling experiences and losses and so forth. Why? Well, because people had something to, uh, to live for and were focused on, on, uh, on helping each other uh, and less inclined to get stuck uh, in their own uh, misery. These are the kinds of incredible opportunities that the future offers. The future is is virtually certain to be in many ways more difficult than the present. It can also, in the most important ways, be be better. We can flourish together, we can find meaning, we can build through topias, and we have to imagine them. And this is where I think there is a huge role for people who are um, thinking about the future in every way, people who are contemplating scenarios in the civil service, um, scientists, um, and perhaps especially for creatives, artists, uh, storytellers, um, who need to tell us the stories of how we'll get through this, uh, or, if you will, how we got through this. I think many of the most compelling throughtopias will be told uh, in a retrospective uh, kind of way. Um, By the way, uh, proper throughtopian thinking, doesn't stop. It it carries on transformatively adapting, right? In other words, it's not about how we get through this to the other side, to some alleged other side where everything's going to be fine. No. We're launched on a voyage here which is going to take thousands of years. Like in terms of the the climate damage that we've that we've done, like going back to sea level rise, one of the things which isn't so great about sea level rise is that the likelihood is it will keep on grinding forward for centuries, almost no matter what we do. Um, because of what the forces that have already been unleashed. So we're, we're launched on a on a, a very long journey here. When I talk about getting through, I don't mean through to some other side, um, mm-hmm. because that's reverting to kind of utopian thinking of, oh, we're going we're gonna to arrive somewhere, it's going to be brilliant, and then everything's going to be fine, and they lived happily ever after. Thrutopianism is about taking seriously that we're on a journey, and this journey is gonna last a very long time. So it's about how, about how we get through what is coming and what keeps coming at us in the best possible way. And it's about telling ourselves the story or other stories of our future. Uh, and then of course, starting to make those stories real. And in this way, I think that throughtopianism is very, very reality-based and very, very hopeful, very, very exciting. It's the best kind of uh, active hope uh, that we can now have. Uh, and yeah, uh, it seems to be an idea which is catching on. Uh, people are appreciating it and more and more people are contacting me and Mander for example, and saying, yes, this is what I'm doing, or this is what we need to do, or I want to help um, achieve this kind of uh, utopian uh, uh, vision, whether through their deeds or through their words.
0: Wonderful. And I want to talk a little bit about how we mobilise large groups of people and what will kind of lead towards the Climate Majority Project towards the end of the conversation. But before we get there, one of the things that I'd love to touch on briefly is um, kind of as a framing that I heard you uh, offer in conversation with Jeremy Lent. And it was the idea that if we think about ways in which to engage with the crises and um, framings that we can use that could be helpful, you offered the suggestion of instead of seeing things as movements, seeing things as waves moving in the same direction, the mm. ebb and flow, and that they're iterative and part of a, or at least in my mind, I perceived it as part of a larger body Oriented towards positive, transformative change. Yeah. And so as part of that, I'd love to ask you, as like one of these iterations and embodiments or waves, um, as one of the key folks who helped to launch XR, and I know that you guys kind of parted ways in 2020, what are some of the lessons that you learned from that chapter and some of the things that we need now that perhaps are different in this current wave going forward?
1: Nice. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so... Extinction Rebellion achieved something remarkable, right? Uh, We we changed, we forced a national conversation in 2019 about climate and nature, uh, especially climate. Uh, And it was fantastic to be uh, an organic part of something which actually succeeded to some significant extent uh, for once. Um, And I think the crucial thing about XR is that that success then needed to be followed up, and it still does. Um, Now, do you follow up with more of the same? Well, maybe, but maybe there's something even more important that needs to happen now, which is for a far larger movement, or better still, a far larger wave of people to take advantage of that achievement of the conversation that got forced and the consciousness that got raised uh, in order to start to bring about the actual changes, including policy change, that we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that has barely happened. Now, this uh, podcast of yours, Natalie, some people who listen to it are activists, many people are not. Um, activism is uh, is great. Exile um, was a brilliant example of activism. XR sought to move beyond the uh, the activist bubble, if you will. It, it sought to move, as uh, as it was put at the time, beyond ideology, beyond party politics. And that was a good, again, that was something that was very innovative about XR. But it's not clear that XR could really succeed in doing that. XR, for example, was never very, very credible at reaching out to the apolitical or to uh, conservatives. Um, Uh, It also um, found it difficult to reach outside its class base um, to a large extent. Um, This uh, massive, unenviable task is what is needed now. We need to have something going forward which is diffuse but real, which is vast Uh, which is not limited to activists, which is not even, I would say, limited to conceiving of itself as a movement. Hmm. Some vast, semi-joined up wave of action in which people who are parents and business people and professionals and churchgoers Uh, perhaps. People who think of themselves in ways which has very little in common with activism start to see themselves as part of a shared endeavour to co-create the future that we've been talking about Mm. on this podcast. Uh, And that is what, since 2020, I've been trying to envisage uh, and build. uh, And... Yeah, the way that uh, I started to describe it was as uh, a new moderate flank Hmm. of uh, climate and nature action that was distributed uh, across society among people who, as I say, would never think, oh, yes, I'm becoming an activist, but who who are taking action, who are meaningfully acting along with others uh, in their workplace or in their uh, institution or in the community uh, where they live. Uh, to bring about the kind of changes, to bring about the kind of future uh, that we need to start to model it uh, where they are and where they therefore have some power and voice uh, and to start to understand all of these things as part of one joined up, but broadly semi joined up uh, phenomenon uh, in the kind of way that a wave is is one thing, even though there are all these different molecules of water <laughs> in it moving around uh, at the same time. So think of um, lawyers who are senior corporate lawyers who are trying to point their company uh, in um, a more uh, ecologically sane uh, direction uh, and think of um, those who are following the uh, the Pope's words about what needs to uh, change in our relation to the planet, uh, and think of people, uh, some of them conservative people, some of them Brexit voting, whatever, uh, living in rural areas who are st- who are trying to create some resilience together, maybe growing some food together, maybe running a pub together. Uh, maybe um, um, having a community energy scheme uh, together. These these people that I've just mentioned, the, the lawyers, the followers of the Pope, the people in the rural community, they sound completely uh, diverse. They sound completely different from each other, mm. but they all have something in common. They're all part of this wave. This is the new moderate flank that I've been trying to uh, call for, uh, name uh, and network. Uh, and it's what uh, we are trying to... Um, uh, midwife, in part through uh, the organization that we've recently launched that is called the Climate Majority Project.
0: So exciting. And I love this image of these interconnected waves. Um, another sort of similar framing that really struck me that seems to have similarities to this, I forget who named it, um, but at the, at the summit was this idea of a myceliated network. And you occasionally see the fruiting bodies, like these different waves, pop up, but they're all interconnected. Yeah. And that part of the work within this kind of moderate flank, as well as people who are being activists, like kind of connecting everyone up together, who want a more flourishing future for all of us, is making visible these interconnected nodes of change, of local resilience, of adaptation, of collaboration and community building. But so let's talk a little bit more about the Climate Majority Project.
1: Just before we do, yeah, on the the mycelium, just to mention in passing that... uh, this is a wonderful image, and it is one that we use in uh, transformative uh, adaptation. Ah. The way that, the, the, the way that yeah, fungi uh, spring up uh, um, from a, a kind of common uh, root, uh, beautifully described, for example, by Merlin Sheldrake in his recent book, uh, Entangled Life, and he now mm-hmm. has a film out narrated by Björk, which looks amazing uh, about this. Um, oh, this, is a, this is a fantastic... So
0: exciting. Yeah, it's a fantastic
1: metaphor for, for what we need. Uh, it's, let's put it this way. Uh, it's either that or The Last of Us, oh, uh, for of those of you familiar <laughs> with the TV series. Those are the two different ways in which we can orient ourselves fungally, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the waves and the myceliation kind of gives us the, those two bodies, the water and the earth, and there's just something very nice. beautiful about that symmetry. So I don't know where you'd like to begin. I would love to make a little time for the four key strands of climate action that we can engage in that that are on the Climate Majority Project website, because I think they're so vivid for people to be able to start to get their heads and hearts around. Might you be happy to kind of walk us through those four key strands?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, I'll just say one more word about the sort of... um how we got to, to this. So as I say, in 2019, the the, the radical flank punched this hole in uh, in the, uh, the consensus which had been then ruling or the sort of soft denial, really, which had been in place around climate. Um, and the new moderate flank is trying to pay the best possible compliment to that by filling that space, but without compromising on the elements of that agenda which shouldn't be compromised with. So it's primarily about a different set of uh, tactics and strategies for achieving much the same goal. Hmm. So the first of our four strands uh, is uh, truthfulness, <laughs> uh, is uh, a culture of being absolutely clear about what's happened, absolutely ruthlessly realistic. The truth is far too good to be kept to um, a coterie of uh, of civil servants and scientists and activists. Uh, Everybody needs it, and actually the vast majority of people want it. At any rate, that's, for example, what is suggested by the professional audience research that we had done that shows that if people are given the right context for receiving difficult news, then they can receive it and they want to receive it. So what's the right context? Well, that's the remaining strand. So the second strand is people need help in handling the truth. When the truth is difficult, uh, we, need to have a, a, we need to build uh, a shared culture of um, psychological, sociological, uh, cultural uh, resilience uh, to uh, to deal with that. Uh, and that can mean all sorts of things. One of the ideas that we have right now in the Climate Majority Project is, uh, and we're putting this into action, there's going to be a campaign uh, along these lines, uh, is that eco-anxiety needs to be legitimated. Yes. People who are feeling climate anxiety, that is entirely... Natural in this unnatural world that human beings have now uh, created, mm. um, and so for for instance, wherever it is predictable that people are going to be forced into feeling that if they are uh, enabled to face up to climate reality, there ought to be resources that are made available to them to help them cope with them we 're talking about schools for instance, right if people are taught uh, ecology, climate science, etc in school is triggering it's triggering it's <laughs> difficult so there should be uh psychological resources uh, there should be um potentially stuff like counseling available or at the very least talking through people's uh feelings in a sort of pastoral context maybe right there in the classroom to, to mainstream this in the kind of way that mindfulness has been more or less mainstreamed over the last generation to the extent that it is now, and not many people still seem to know this, that, that <laughs> mindfulness is now taught uh, to uh, to primary school kids, which I amazing. think is a, is amazing <laughs> basic form of mindfulness. Uh, um, most primary school kids now have access to some of this, uh, for instance, uh, often after, after lunch. Um <laughs> So um, yeah, that's that's the second strand. The second strand is resources to help us handle the difficult truth uh, together. The third strand, which is equally crucial and in, in a way is the bottom line of the whole thing, is effective, tangible, practical action together. People need to be signposted to what they can do, which mm. actually could be enough, which is actually meaningful, not kind of Things which are uh, essentially marginal, like um, giving a bit of money every month to a uh, an NGO in the in the area or um, uh, personally uh, eating less or flying less, you know these things all matter, but we know that they're not going to be enough by themselves. The yeah. system needs to change there needs to be transformation that 's only going to come if people do stuff together and press for a general cultural change, including a change in political culture. And that means people need to take action together. Now, for most people, the vast majority of people, that is not gonna be activism, let alone radical flank style uh, activism. Um, So it is the kind of stuff that we've already started to touch on. It's taking action together in your workplace, or it's really greening your business. But what really greening your business has to mean, centrally, uh, is lobbying um, power um, such that all businesses uh, have to be green. It's not enough. If you just green your own business, right, It's that's kind of like um, just um, reducing your own um, carbon footprint, mm. which is all very well as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far, right? Mm-hmm. We need to do these things together, fractally at every level. Uh, collective action needs to be taken, which will ultimately translate into a change in political culture, a change in political class, uh, into real... Um, uh, policy and uh, and collective uh, action, so the third strand is the making available to people and making it possible for people to figure out for themselves to some extent what their role is in this, what their part to play is, what their work is to do, what is the action that they can take, where do they have voice, where do they have potential power and of course, sometimes for some people that 's going to be um, ex- paradoxically exactly where they 're powerless. Um, So a great example here that we had in recent years was the the school climate strikes. When you have uh, millions of school children um, calling out, um, save our world, uh, then um, that is a huge tug on the heartstrings and on the conscience. Um, Yeah, young people don't have very much uh, direct power, but they do have the power of the powerless in droves. So everybody has some kind of power uh, in their lives. Everybody, I would say, has some kind of superpower. even if that superpower is only the power of uh, the powerless. Everybody, for instance, uh, lives somewhere with along with other people. And when we build um, physical resilience together, uh, when we take uh, community climate action, um, then crucially part of what we're doing is we're waking other people up, at least, uh, because we're showing by our actions that we're serious about transformative adaptation. We're showing by our actions that this isn't something about Climate is not about 2050 or 2100. It's about stuff that is happening now Mm. and preparation and resilience needs to be built now in relation to it. Mm -hmm. So we start, the first strand is truthfulness. The second strand is help in handling the truth. The third strand is effective action that rises to uh, the challenge um, laid down to us uh, by um, our enraged uh, natural world. Um, and the fourth and final strand is awareness of all this and understanding that this is already started to happen, that it is bound to happen more. Uh, that all of these things, that community climate action, that uh, senior corporate lawyers and insurers are doing the right thing, uh, that um, action through religious institutions, that all of these things are part of this, ultimately of this one wave. The fourth trend, therefore, is, is sense making, is shared understanding uh, and in particular realising, as I say, um, that this phenomenon, This wave is underway, uh, and that the only question that matters is what part you're going to play in it.
0: Mm. Beautiful. Okay, so we only have a couple minutes left in this section, but I do want to flag before we get to the last two questions of this moment your new book, Climate Majority Project, which is coming out in early 2024. Where can people find out more about it? What are the best places to find you? Uh, so that they can keep up and then also learn some more information about these practical ways to connect with others and be part of this wave.
1: Well, thanks for that, Natalie. Uh, This is nice (laughs) advance notice for the book. It very much is (laughs) advance notice. The book will appear in January uh, 2024. uh, And right now there's very little you can find out about it on the internet. Um, But you can get a a sort of premonition of it (laughs) by going to the Climate Majority Project website. One thing people can do there is to sign up for... um, semi-regular email updates for instance and you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, as the book's publication date comes near there will be plenty of updates about the appearance of the book we're very excited about the book and about the the very fine people who've offered uh, remarkable endorsement quotes uh, for it it is a collective uh, project Uh, this is an edited book and a lot of the people in it are participants in the emerging climate majority. They are these uh, community uh, uh, activists and people taking community action who are not uh, uh, regarding themselves as activists. And uh, they are people who are uh, undertaking action in the sphere of uh, uh, insurance and other areas of business uh, like that. Um, the, The book is about the theory and practice of the emerging climate majority. Uh, and perhaps it's worth me adding here that the reason why we call our project the Climate Majority Project is that the poly crisis uh, includes climate as, if you will, the leading edge of it, in the sense that in relation to climate, there already is now a majority who are at least somewhat awake. Uh, what we need to do is to deepen uh, that sense of, of awakenedness uh, and enable people to act on it uh, mm. in meaningful uh, ways. Uh, and ultimately, that needs to spread across the whole sphere of overshoot, the whole sphere of, uh, of the polycrisis. But climate is kind of where it starts, because it's the existential threat that has really already kind of dawned on, uh, on people. Um, and it's in that sense that we uh, call ourselves the Climate Majority Project. Uh, and it's going to be uh, starting to rise to that challenge that the book is about.
0: Wonderful. Um, and so if you're listening to this or watching this and you want to find out more, the link is climatemajorityproject.com. You can also check out Rupert's work at rupertreed.net. And so to close this part of the conversation, I'd love to ask, how do you orient yourself towards life and beauty on dark days?
1: Mm, well, right now I'm uh, standing standing in front of my computer in the garden room that my wife and I built on the third of an acre, oh. one third of an acre that we have in rural Norfolk on the edge of the Norfolk Broads mm. uh, on a little hill. And uh, If I look to the right of my computer screen, uh, I can see this uh, incredible um, flourishing, I use the word advisedly, uh, <laughs> garden that we've co-created in the last uh, couple of years, uh, also with a little bit of help from friends and, uh, and the community. Uh, we got the hedge, for instance, from the conservation volunteers because mm. there's a footpath that goes around the edge of our land, which is wonderful. We get to talk to passers-by uh, as they pass by. Uh, <laughs> and I can tell you that the uh, the garden uh, is incredibly full of, uh, of colour, even though we're recording this uh, in the middle of October. We've got yeah. um, many flowers that are still out and much produce that is still... Um, Burgeoning on the vines and uh, plants and so forth uh, in front of me. Uh, and I'm mentioning all that because nowadays, probably my biggest single um, solace is very, very close at hand. Mm. Um, I spend um, the majority of my time and my life uh, working on Throotopianism and uh, building the climate majority. Uh, and i spend a sizable majority of it um out there uh on the land and it's very very nourishing the the worry i sometimes have is that, that the land uh pulls me uh even more uh, strongly at times than the than the the difficult yes. endless work of uh, of yeah. organizing and uh, and and thinking uh, and so forth, but you know that's a good kind of uh, worry to to have, really. Uh, and right now, I'm I'm pretty comfortable that that my work life balance is is pretty healthy, and and that's really important, Natalie, because you know mm. it won't do uh, if we talk about oh yes, yeah, so we should all kind of slow down and have more community and so on, and then we spend all our time just stuck behind a computer screen <laughs> and, and never live. Uh, any of it you know there does have to be some practicing of what one preaches and uh, uh, I'm managing I think uh, I'm delighted to be able to say delighted to be able to report to to uh, to to strike that balance and and walk my uh, talk uh, in the way I'm living
0: now. Mm. Rupert thank you so much it's been an absolute joy to be in conversation with you I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Natalina High in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalinahigh.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. And check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at High. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.